Hi, this is Allison Sheridan of the NoSillaCast podcast, hosted at podfeet.com, a technology geek podcast with an ever so slight Apple bias. Today is Sunday, September 20th, 2020, and this is show number 802. Well, it was Apple announcement this week, and that means Lori Gill, managing editor of iMore, was back on Chit Chat Across the Pond Light to talk about all the new toys and services. Lori and I seem to have like this instant chemistry. Uh, Lori put it perfectly when we were, uh, after we were done recording, she complained that her cheeks hurt from smiling so much during the show. You know, we, we didn't go through every nitty gritty detail of the announcements, but we focused on just a few things like how fun the new colors are and whether Apple is doing a good job of bringing in lower priced models of their hardware and whether the new family setup will be right for families with kids or elderly relatives. Like I said, we had a blast, and I think you will too. Look for Chit Chat Across the Pond Light in your podcatcher of choice, or you can go listen at the link in the show notes to podfeet.com. Last month, I wrote up all of the reasons I think Telegram is a better messaging app than Apple Messages. After I finished that article, I decided to make a tutorial on Telegram for Screencasts Online. This turned out to be quite a bit of a challenge to do in a way that didn't reveal the private information being conveyed to me in Telegram by my friends and family. Your Telegram persona is tied directly to your phone number, but you can choose to only reveal your handle to people on the service. I realized that I could use my trusty Google Fi cell card because it has a different phone number to create a different persona. One of the best features of Google Fi is that I can pause service for three months at a time and pause it again and again and again so I don't pay anything until I really need it. Google Fi costs are prorated by how many days in a month you use it, and I only needed to turn it on for a few days. You see, you only need the phone number active long enough to install the app and sign in on each device after receiving the SMS message on the phone number. I created a second persona called at NoSillaCast. My main persona is PodFeed, as you would expect. In doing this, I discovered that you can have Telegram logged into two accounts at the same time and flip back and forth between them. I thought that was pretty cool. I did not know you could do that. Well, next I had to get some people to agree to play with me in my fake account. Steve and Steven Getz are usually up for this kind of fun, and my friend Diane was also excited to help. J.F. Brissett, my editor for Screencast Online, was just learning about Telegram, and he volunteered too. The tricky part, though, was to have them respond at the exact instant when I was ready to record a specific action I needed them to take. I couldn't really just sit there for 10 minutes rolling film, as it were, or have them respond too quickly before I hit record. That's when I realized I could talk to myself. Remember, I've got two personalities now, right? I would do this setup as NoSillaCast on the Mac where I was recording because I didn't have a lot of private stuff going on, and then I could respond as my PodFeet account on my iPad. This worked really, really well. But then I wanted to demonstrate how well the group features worked in Telegram. So I gathered the volunteers in a group while recording from NoSillaCast, but then sent them a message from my personal PodFeed account asking them to respond right now to an incoming request and and to, you know, write back in some sort of benign way. I didn't want any funny business on the video, right? Well, the last tricky bit was trying to demonstrate how you can make audio and video calls within Telegram. Steve was the the closest person at hand. I couldn't figure out how to talk to myself without a lot of feedback. So since Steve was there, he agreed to be in that video tutorial as we chatted. I expected this to be challenging to pull off for all of the reasons above, but I think I nailed it. 
If you'd like to see the teaser trailer, I posted a link in at podfeet.com, but I got to warn you, as always, becoming a member at Screencast Online is addictive. You get a free trial, but then you're going to want to subscribe after you start watching the vast library of the back catalog. The other screencasters are all terrific too, so be careful or you will get sucked in. All right, let's kick off the show with a short review of the 2020 MacBook Air by Dan Eckmeyer. Hello, Allison, Steve, and all those Jello castaways. It's Dan Eckmeyer from Ontario, Canada here, and I thought I'd come in here to give my thoughts on the latest MacBook Air, the 2020 MacBook Air, as I decided to pick one up recently. The previous laptop I had was an early 2014 MacBook Air that was getting a little long in the tooth and starting to slow down and just do some funky stuff that I didn't like. I tried a reformat of that particular machine to see if that would help, but, well, to no avail, it didn't help. And I also wanted to be sure that I had a machine that would support the latest OS and all of its features, with the release of macOS Big Sur becoming imminent. So I decided to get a 2020 MacBook Air. This particular machine that I got had specs of 8 gigs of RAM, a quad-core i5 processor, and a 512 gigabyte SSD. My previous machine had 4 gigs of RAM and a dual-core processor and 256 GB storage. So this machine was bound to be a lot faster than my previous one. And sure enough, it was. And I wanted the MacBook Air as well because it still has function keys and no touch bar. When the touch bar first came out, I tried a touch bar MacBook Pro very, very briefly at an Apple store as I was going to get something else there, and I thought I would try one of the Touch Bar MacBook Pros. I wasn't enthused by the Touch Bar, and I still to this day think it's a gimmick. Using it with VoiceOver would be rather difficult, I would think, even though it's just like iOS, where you have to double tap on stuff to get it to activate, and that sort of thing. Since apps can put their own things on there, it'll be a little bit difficult I would think, as if you wanted function keys, I don't know how you would go about getting them, especially if you were an app that, where the developer had used the touch bar to put stuff on it in relation to that app, I don't know how you would um, get the use of function keys again. So, in order to avoid the headaches of the touch bar, I decided to go for a MacBook Air, and I couldn't be more pleased with my decision. And as well, I'm loving Touch ID. So my upgrade to the 2020 MacBook Air has been very, very well worth it. Well, thanks, Dan. I'm really excited for you having that new MacBook Air. It sounds terrific. Now, I'm not going to defend the touch bar, but I do have a comment about one question you posed. You asked how you would get to the function keys on Touch Bar if the developer of an app had put other stuff there. It turns out there's still a dedicated function key in the bottom left of Touch Bar Max, and when you hold that down, the function keys appear in Touch Bar. That said, 
I agree. I do think it's kind of a gimmick, and I don't find it that I use it nearly as often as I thought I would. The second point I wanted to make was that when I'm testing things in voiceover, I have a heck of a time using Touch Bar. I know how to double tap things on iOS with voiceover, but for some reason, I can't seem to do it right with Touch Bar. For example, when you select volume while sighted, you can drag your finger to lower the volume. With voiceover turned on, it tells you when you've selected the volume control, and it tells you you can drag anywhere on the touch bar after you hear a rising tone. I never hear a rising tone. It's easier to find the up-down volume controls with voiceover and then just tap a zillion times, just go up, 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 or down, 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 down. It's usually down, 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 down that I'm trying to do. Overall, it's not a good experience to me. Maybe if I had to use it all the time, I'd get the hang of it, but so far, it baffles me. Thanks again, Dan, for a great review of the 2020 MacBook Air. The reason that I do the podcast is that I just like to help people. I love to teach what I know, and podcasting and blogging give me that outlet. You've heard me say before that the best part of this has been the community of Nocilla Castaways that I've gotten to know over the years. I think a lot about the different places we have to chat, and I wanted to talk a bit about the way the community engages in Facebook versus Slack. If you've never joined either conversation, maybe this article will encourage you to start. And if you're on Facebook but not our Slack, perhaps this will encourage you to give it a try. When I first created the Facebook group, we also had a Google Plus community, and the people there begged me not to create the Facebook group because they felt it would divide us. But as soon as I created it, the community began to flourish on Facebook, and we had people in there I'd never gotten to talk to before. So it's like they talk about you don't want to split the pie. We actually had more pie when we were done when we had two places. We were in two different places, which was unfortunate, but the sum of the two groups was much larger, so I considered it a win. At the same time, Google Plus was doing a slow downward spiral to death, so even as the diehards were participating less and less, I promised I would stay engaged as long as we had people in there, and I'm pretty sure it was just Steve and me at the very end to turn off the lights. Before the demise of Google Plus, I needed to make sure we had a place for those who eschew Facebook to be able to play, so I created the Podfeet Slack. Almost immediately, the Podfeet Slack grew to include not just those diehards from Google+, but lots and lots of other new people. Fast forward to today. An interesting thing has started to happen. The Facebook community appears to be slowing down. I post my articles there, and in Slack, and on Twitter, and Steve and a few others post interesting articles from the web about tech, but it's not that often that anyone comments about those articles. People on Facebook aren't often asking questions there either. One notable exception is that our daughter Lindsay recently posted a question about replacing her printer, and she got lots of great responses and advice. It seems that people get interested when someone needs help and asks a question. Now, why would they do that more on Slack than on Facebook? I have a theory on why the Slack community is so much more engaging than Facebook. In Facebook, there's one message area without any categories for conversation subjects. If you post a question and a short time later someone responds to an older post, that older post will pop above yours in the Facebook feed and your question will get buried. I think the lack of categorized conversations may limit people's imagination of what they can or should talk about. Slack has the concept of channels within a group. The admin can create as many channels as they like. My goal has been to limit the number of channels because I don't want to create a paralysis of choice. I think we've settled on a nice balance of just enough channels for right now. The coolest thing about the channels is that you join only the ones that interest you. You can even turn on notifications and be sure that you'll only be alerted 
to your areas of interest. I think the channels we created are self-explanatory, which is why they work so well, but I want to walk through them for you. The first one is called Show Announcements. In here, Steve and I spam the group with each new blog post and reminders about the live show, or when there's an Apple announcement coming up where we all might want to chat live. So we say, hey, go on over to Discord and have the chat when, we, when the show goes live. It's a nice place to be notified, but if you just like to wait till the podcasts come out, you know, maybe you don't want those notifications, so you wouldn't join show announcements. The next one is Security Bits. This is obviously about security topics, but it's also important to know this is where Bart watches this one channel. He actually watches two of them, but he watches this one. If you have a security question, you're likely to get attention in here. The community will often post articles about security concerns in this channel as well. We have a channel for programming by Stealth, which is a generic place for people to chat about programming problems and solutions. Even people who aren't taking programming by stealth, they enjoy hanging out in here just because they like programming. As you might imagine, this is another channel where Bart is known to participate. Members post interesting tools they've found, tutorials that help them, and ask clarifying questions about the programming by stealth series. I think it might be my favorite channel right now. I invented a channel called NCS Show Off, uh, No Sella Castaways Show Off, because I wanted people to have a place to show off cool things they're doing. The very name invites people to do it. Bart posts his Let's Talk podcast episodes there. Darren, also known as the Mac Quad, posts about his audio reverb radio station. Jill recently posted a video of a meteor she caught with her security camera. I posted a photo I got of Comet Neowise. This channel has no rules other than to show off the stuff you're proud of. Delete Me is one of my favorite channels. You know I swear by the idea of creating a folder on your computer called Delete Me that tells future you that it contains things you don't care about. That concept carries forward to Slack, so people know this is a great place to drop in anything that doesn't fit the other categories. It's for silly things, things that have nothing to do with the podcast or even technology. Alistair recently put in a rant about annoying experiences with Microsoft products. I posted a video Steve made of our cat Grace putting her head in a box. Kaylee posted a funny cartoon about printers. This is such a fun channel and it has no redeeming value. I created a channel called Deals because I, I thought it might be a good place to have uh, where people could post deals, you know, like a drop in price on an iPad or iTunes gift cards on sales or, or bundles for college kids. But it doesn't get a lot of traffic in there. I think I'm the only one who really posts in there very often. The final channel is called General, and this is the most widely used channel because it's kind of a catch-all place for talking about tech, asking questions, and discussing new announcements. The nice thing about having the channels is that it seems to actually encourage conversation because people get inspired by the subject of the channels. As an administrator of the, of the Slack, I get to decide what channels you're automatically going to see, and I choose uh, NoSellicast Ways Show Off and Show Announcements in addition to General. So when you first join, those are the three that you're in. This means that when you first join, you have to figure out how to add the rest of the channels you're going to carry about, uh, you're going to care about. I posted a question to our Slack group asking people why they like Slack so much, and Marty brought up what he does for the Slack that he manages to help with the discovery of channels problem. He has a standard message he posts to every new member that welcomes them and tells them how to find other channels. I have now created a text expander snippet to do exactly that for our new members. Notifications of activity on Slack are super flexible too. In Facebook, you either get all of the notifications or you get none of them. But in Slack, you can use the main preferences to set notifications only if you're mentioned, 
or maybe only if a keyword of your choosing is used. I originally thought that was the only granularity, but if you go into a specific channel, you can use the little eye icon and go into more and set notifications for that specific channel. So let's say you're a huge fan of the Delete Me channel, because I mean, like, who isn't, right? You could set your notifications to be for every post in that channel while leaving all of the other channels set to only if you're tagged in a post. That's pretty cool. In Slack, you can have direct message conversations with one person or even several in a group. I'm often privately chatting with Mike Price or Michael Westby about programming topics or discussing Marty's latest masterpiece review for us or encouraging Tim Jarr to keep challenging me with his contrary opinions, all within Slack. I would never have gotten to know any of these folks if it wasn't for Slack. Now, we use the Discord chat for the live show at podfeet.com slash chat, as I mentioned, and that allows Steve and I to talk in audio and provides text chat. Discord, though, doesn't support threaded messages, which is fine for the stream of consciousness conversations of a live chat, but that doesn't work for thoughtful, asynchronous conversations like we need. Both Facebook and Slack support threaded messages. Facebook has a very obvious write-a-comment box under every post, and if you want to respond to a specific comment, there's actually a reply button for each individual comment, and that automatically ats the originator of the comment. It works really well. Slack, on the other hand, obfuscates its ability to do threaded messaging. It's in there, but you have to know how to look for it, and they hide it in different places depending on which operating system you're using. For example, on the desktop version, when looking at a post, there will be no options available at all to reply to that post. If you hover your cursor over the post, only then will a set of options be revealed, including add an emoji reaction, start a thread, forward, bookmark, and more. Here's a case where screen readers, well, usually screen readers, users get a diminished experience. But in this case, they actually have an advantage. Since the start a thread option only shows up on hover, I wasn't sure how a screen reader would find it. In Slack, though, the invisible emoji reaction, reply, and share buttons are actually read out loud and clear by voiceover. I'm sure glad it's accessible to the visually impaired, even if they hide the buttons for the sight links. Once someone has discovered these elusive thread options on a particular post, other readers will now see the number of replies, and when that's clicked, it reveals the threads. At least it's obvious at that point. The result of this stupid obfuscation is that people reply in line instead of in threads, and that means the original poster doesn't always get a notification that someone has responded to them. Maybe I should make a text expander snippet that says, responding just so the thread is obvious, and do that to 100% of the posts in our Slack. Another thing that the Slackers like is that you can write in Markdown. In general, I find keystrokes like Command-I to italicize easier than using the code for it in Markdown, but there's one spot where this is super useful. Markdown allows you to put code in monospace. A single backtick, that's the key to the left of the one on the U.S. keyboard, if you put a single backtick on either side of a code snippet, it really helps it stand out. Everyone said that having threads and channels is the real killer feature of Slack. Dave Hay added that another reason he likes Slack is that it's not Facebook, which he wrote as exclamation point Facebook, which is a programming way of saying not. The best part of that comment was when Mike Price, also known as Grumpy, responded with, Dave, this is the general channel, not programming by stealth. I love that. Anyway, Mike's other answer to my question about what makes him like our Slack community was even better. He wrote, I like the opportunity to try to help folks with their tech questions and problems. 
I know that answer isn't specific to Slack, but it's the best part of having any community chat. Now, I wrote up this discussion of Facebook versus Slack last week, but I didn't have room for it in last week's podcast, but the blog post did go up. Well, you know exactly what happened, right? The people on Facebook went bananas this week having all kinds of great conversations. Now, it wasn't just because of the new announcements either. Joe started talking about upgrading from Sierra to Catalina. Mark started a discussion about how cool spatial audio is on AirPods Pro. Eric posted a guide about using watchOS 7 without forced touch. Bob posted an article about some security issue. And people even started responding to all of my blog posts. I don't think this all happened because of the article, but I'm sure glad people are having fun in there. I still think Slack is a cooler place to hang out, but I just want everyone to have fun wherever they are. If what I've talked about here makes you think you do want to give Slack a try, check it out over at podfeet.com slash Slack. Internet of Things devices, also known as IoT, are proliferating into our lives, saving us from the incredibly arduous tasks of turning off light bulbs and closing our blinds. If you've been playing with IoT for any length of time, you know what I'm talking about. Setting up IoT devices usually follows this generic set of steps. You launch the vendor-specific app on your phone, you press some sort of button on the IoT device, the app will then tell you to change your Wi-Fi network, your phone's Wi-Fi network, to the one being broadcast by the IoT device. Then the IoT device handshakes with your phone and magic in the background. And then you change your phone back to your real Wi-Fi and everything's great. During this process, the IoT device will attempt to connect to the real Wi-Fi network your phone is using. While many modern IoT devices connect easily in this way, some IoT devices simply fail to connect. And here's why. The network your phone is connected to is probably using the 5 gigahertz radio of your Wi-Fi router, but IoT devices usually only have a 2.4 gigahertz radio. I'll get into why some overcome this obstacle and some don't in a little bit. With the traditional non-mesh routers, you could name your 5 gigahertz and 2.4 gigahertz radio with two different service set identifiers, also known as SSIDs. If you did separate the networks in this way, you could connect your phone to the 2.4 GHz network during setup of the IoT device so the IoT device would see the correct radio, and then when you were done, you could change your phone back to the 5 GHz radio. While this method worked, it meant you were constantly seeing two Wi-Fi signals for one router, which was annoying, Or, but you know, at least you, get, you could get your toys to work. I remember working with Belkin a few years ago trying to get some ancient Wemo switches back on our network after I swapped out a router, and it was only after Steve and I spent hours and hours of fussing with them that I remembered they required this 2.4 GHz network. Many people have moved from traditional single access point Wi-Fi routers to mesh router systems. If you have an IoT device that cannot connect, you simply cannot name the two different radios with different SSIDs. I've had IoT manufacturers helping diagnose their equipment with me suggest just get really far from the router during setup. They suggest this because the lower frequency Wi-Fi signal, 2.4 GHz, travels farther than the higher frequency 5 GHz band. So here I am in the backyard over by the IV trying to see if I can get the chimney that I know is lined in metal to block the terrific Wi-Fi signal my mesh router system is broadcasting just to set up an IoT switch outlet. It didn't work when I tried that, of course. As a complete side note, would you like a way to remember that it's lower frequencies that travel farther than high frequencies? 
You know how if someone has a big bassy stereo booming away in their car, you can hear it down the block? That's because it's such low frequency. You never hear the piccolos from a mile away, do you? So remember, it's the low frequency that goes a long ways. So the 2.4 gigahertz in this example. Now, I promised to tell you why even though pretty much all IoT devices only have 2.4 GHz radios, some of them can connect to mesh systems broadcasting only one SSID for both radios, but some can't. I've been chatting with Dave Hamilton of the Mac Geekab about this for a couple of years, and on a recent show, he explained what he thinks is going on. In the ones doing it incorrectly, he says that the IoT device looks at the Wi-Fi signal to which your phone is connected and connects to the MAC address of the radio, and that's likely to be the 5 GHz radio. MAC addresses identify specific hardware, and under normal circumstances, those never change. So here's this light bulb that has detected the MAC address of your 5 GHz radio as the one it thinks it wants, and yet it can't talk to that frequency and fails to connect. The ones that are doing it correctly are being a little bit more intelligent. Like their less intelligent brethren, they start by finding the Wi-Fi signal to which your phone is connected, but they don't grab the MAC address, they only look at the SSID. As long as they choose the SSID, the Wi-Fi router will serve them both radios, and since they only have a 2.4 GHz radio, the IoT device will get only the right one. So, this was supposed to be a tiny tip, but I needed to do all of that setup. What do you do if you have a mesh router and an IoT device that can't connect? On the same episode of the Mac Geek Gab, John F. Braun was talking about some light bulbs he couldn't get to connect to his mesh network, which in his case is an Eero router. He and Dave were musing on whether it was a 2.4 GHz problem. Listener Curtis wrote in the following week explaining that Eero has the perfect solution to the problem. Thanks to Curtis, here's the tiny tip you've been waiting for. In the Eero app, tap on Settings in the bottom right, then select Troubleshooting. The very first item in troubleshooting says, my device won't connect. When you select that option, there are three paragraphs explaining pretty much what I've just described. And then you'll see a lovely big blue button that says, temporarily pause five gigahertz. Isn't that awesome? When you select that option, you get a countdown timer starting at 15 minutes, during which time your five gigahertz network will be unavailable, giving you ample time to connect your less than brilliant IoT device. During this time, all your other devices should continue to work, but you might see some speed degradation because it's just the 2.4 gigahertz. I am so happy that Curtis wrote in to the Mac Geek Gab to tell us this awesome trick. For this week's pledge break, I am not going to panhandle for money. I'm going to ask for something much more precious to me. If you have any friends who like technology and like podcasts, why don't you tell them about the many fine shows at podfeed.com? Maybe they've always wanted to learn to program. You could tell them about programming by stealth. Or perhaps they're not super geeky, but like a good conversation about tech. You could tell them about Chit Chat Across the Pond Light. Maybe they've always been afraid of the command line. You could tell them about Taming the Terminal and how they can get a free book. Or you could even tell them about the NoSilicast, a place to put world events away for an hour or so and be in your happy place. It's a gift to me if you bring us more friends, and of course, it's a gift to them as well. Wait, what? A second tiny tip? Yes, and this one is epic. I, I am so excited about this one. And I didn't come up with this one either. My neighbor Rick just taught me this awesome trick. 
His wife is scanning in photos, and she's got a lot of negatives to sort through. As Billy Bob Thornton said in Bad Santa, you know, they can't all be winners, so she wants to find the really good negatives to be scanned. The problem is that negatives are very hard to judge with the colors inverted. For some reason, our brains simply can't swap the colors in our heads and make, you know, really tell what a picture is of. I have no idea why or how he thought of this idea, but he figured out how to use an iPhone or iPad to view negatives in their proper colors. Open Settings, Accessibility, Display and Text Size, and find the setting entitled Classic Invert. Toggle it on. Your iOS device will now look very weird, but if you launch the camera app and pretend you're going to take a photo of the negative, you'll be able to see the negative with the colors just as they would be if you printed it. I completely understand why this works, but it is still actually just crazy to see it work. Rick went on to explain that it was tedious to keep going in and out of settings and digging down to classic convert, so he created a shortcut for it. It's quite simple to create yourself. Open shortcuts, tap the plus sign to create a new shortcut. Search for settings, and in that surprisingly short list, you'll find classic convert. When you select it, it will add turn classic convert on. He saved his shortcut with the name invert on, and now he can simply use the S lady to say invert on when he wants to view a negative. He created a second one with the same classic invert, but toggled it from on to off, and he called that one invert off. Now, while his Siri shortcut is brilliant, I thought of another way to speed up the toggling of classic invert. Open settings, accessibility, and scroll all the way to the bottom. You'll see accessibility shortcut. Select it and you'll see a dozen or so accessibility features you can enable by triple clicking the power or home button. When you have just one option selected, as I just described, the trickle, triple click of the power or home button will toggle that feature on and off. You can also select several options and then a triple click will show you the options and you can toggle the ones you want. I keep voiceover, magnifier, and zoom in my list, but I just added classic invert and now I can toggle it on and off if I want to view negatives. I am absolutely tickled with such an innovative solution and even more tickled that my friend Rick figured it out. In Programming by Stealth with Bart Bouchotts, we just passed a huge milestone, not only reaching 100 episodes, but we also completed our section on learning JavaScript. Our final project for this phase was to create a web app with a very specific kind of clock on it. I had so much fun doing the design and coding on this project that I wanted to walk you through what I designed, how it was implemented, and to talk through some of the user interface design decisions. I promise I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of the code itself, but this might be enough tease to get you to think about maybe learning to program yourself, or at the very least, it will help you think about what goes into making web pages interactive. My project is called Time Shifter Clock, and you can view it at podfeet.com slash time-shifter-clock, because everything good starts with podfeet.com, right? The problem I'm trying to solve with my clock is how to tell someone in a different time zone what time you want to meet with them. This comes up in podcasting all the time, but I bet it comes up for you too. Maybe your company spans time zones, and you can never figure out whether your coworker is in the part of Arizona that follows daylight saving time or the part that doesn't. Yes, Arizona people, you're always smug about not following daylight saving time, but there are parts of it, the, the state, that do. Maybe you're trying to plan a family Zoom to stay in touch. In all cases, you spend a lot of time and energy trying to figure out how to explain a future time in two different time zones. 
As I've mentioned at least 238 times before, I have a lot of trouble with addition and subtraction due to my earliest education being hampered by new math in the 1960s. There's a link in the show notes to how stupid this was. Anyway, the result is that arithmetic using the number 8 seems to be even worse than most numbers. So when Bart, who is 8 hours away from me most of the year, he says meet him at 11 p.m., there's a really good chance I will show up at the completely wrong time. Now you may be yelling at your podcatcher that there's a zillion services out there that will provide you with the current time in two time zones. That is absolutely true. But they all tell you what time it is now, not time what time it will be if you shift forward in time. That is the problem my clock solves. Now Bart added a twist to this project for us. I'd planned on making a web app that would tell me what time it would be in my time and someone else's time zone, and then I would manually go type that into an email or text it to that person. He upped the ante by telling us to figure out how to have this little web app create a URL that you could send to someone, and when they opened it in a browser, it would show them the time. That made the game a lot more interesting. For my time shifter clock, I wanted to show three clocks as a minimum. I wanted to show the current time in your time zone, and the seconds would be clicking along, indicating that the time is being constantly updated. I wanted two clocks that will shift in time, but will not update every second like the current time. So there's two ways to create three of the same thing in programming. Option one is I could create three clocks where the code for the two shifting clocks were replicants of each other and the current time had some of the same replicated code. Replicated code is what Bart says is called a bad smell. That bad smell means that if you decide to make a change or find a bug in one place, you have to remember to fix it in all the replicated code. Option two, which is what all the cool kids who've made it past PBS 94 know how to do, is to use what are called classes and instances. I hope I get the terminology right here. People will make fun of me if I don't, but I'm going to do my best. The basic idea is you create a class for a clock that has all of the basic bits and pieces that will exist in every clock, and that every variant is an instance of that clock class. For example, my clock class has a function that checks what time zone has been specified and and fetches the time. I don't need to write that function three times because it's in the class. But I do need to be able to represent different time zones in the different instances of the clock class. To To do this, you create what are called instance attributes, and each instance of the class can have different values for the attributes. I can assign a different time zone to each clock, and then the function to find the time can be written only once, but returns three different values for the three different clocks. One of the attributes I put in my clock class is called time shifted. If the instance of my clock class has time shifted set to false, then it will be unaffected by any user interface element I create that tries to shift the time. If it's set to true, then that particular instance of the clock will shift time when directed to. This is how I have one clock showing the current time in your time zone, and it's not shifting, and two clocks that do shift in time, all without replicating code to show three clocks. I think that's super cool and powerful. I may have been overzealous about class attributes, though. I can have them have different background colors, whether they have a border or not, and all kinds of other nonsense that doesn't really matter very much. I'm pretty sure I even have some attributes in there that I don't even use. It's in my, ne- my ever-lengthening to-do list to clean that up. Now, I wanted the user to get to choose what cities would be represented in the two time-shifting clocks. So I gave the clocks an instance attribute of whether to have a search field. See, the local time doesn't get one, so the other two have to have that as an instance attribute. 
And then I prepended a pretty little icon of a magnifying glass to the text input box that gives the user a hint that they were supposed to search. That little magnifying glass comes from a really cool service called Font Awesome, which Bart is wild about. In fact, I'm pretty sure adding the magnifying glass was his idea to make my user interface a little more, uh, you know, intuitive. Now, I decided the clocks would make more sense if they had a default city in them. So I set the first one to Los Angeles and the second one to Dublin. I know that's selfish because it means for me to work with BART, I don't have to do any searching because it's already going to tell me those time in those two time zones and I can start sliding the slider. But hey, I did all the work, so I get to choose the defaults. Bothers Marianne, she wants one of them to be uh, uh, New Zealand. Anyway, on a web app like this, if you want the user to be able to change things, you add what are called event handlers. That's a fancy way of saying, if the user pushes this here button, go execute that there code. It's pretty obvious that I would need a few of these event handlers. The most critical one to the whole design was an event handler that would allow the user to shift time into the future. I decided to use what's called an input with type equals range. In English, it means a little slider bar you can drag to shift time. When the page first loads, the two clocks that will shift get populated with the time. So let's say it's 4.13 p.m. in Los Angeles and 12.13 a.m. in Dublin when I first render the page. Those times will be frozen waiting for me to shift them, even though the current time will be advancing with each second. Now that's a little weird, but shifting a changing time is just too headbendy for me. In designing the time shifter slider, I had to decide what increments of time the user should see and how far into the future they would see. I decided granularity of a half hour and seeing a week into the future would be kind of a nice sweet spot. Implementation of this created another UI de design decision. If you launch this web app at 4.13 p.m., like we said, would you want a half-hour increment forward to be 4.43 and then 5.13 and 5.43? Probably not, because you're not likely to ask someone to meet you at such a weird time. So in my code, I decided to round the time down to the nearest hour as soon as the person starts to slide. So if it says 4.13 when you load the page, when you start to move the slider, it would first round down to 4 p.m. and then advance forward from there. This might be a little confusing to the user, but later on I'll explain how I solved that possible confusion. Remember up front I said that we had to create a sendable URL that when received by someone else would show them the time you wanted to meet? That is triggered by another event handler. It's great fun writing the underlying code to make the magic happen when you click the big red copy URL to send times button on my web app. Bart also thought it would be useful to allow the viewer to choose whether to see the times chosen in 12 or 24 hour clocks. For that event handler, I chose a little toggle. I like this feature because my brain can't do 24 hour clocks. I find myself always thinking, okay, wait, he said 1300 hours, the 13 minus eight, carry the two, move the decimal place. I don't know what he said. But I can send Bart the time in 12 hours using my time shifter clock. When he receives it, he can just hit the toggle to see it in 24 hours the way he likes to see it. After the user makes all of these decisions, choosing the two cities, dragging the time shifter forward in time, setting 12 or 24 hour as the format, they then hit the big copy URL button and send it to their partner. Now, here's the really fun part. When the other person receives this URL and opens it, they'll see the whole clock interface as I've been describing it, but if they don't like the time that you chose, they can slide it to a different time, copy the URL, and send it right back. 
I think it's a great way to collaboratively decide on a time that's right for both people. Another challenge in the design of my time shifter clock was how to explain what it was going on to the user. Like I said up front, this tool does something different than all of the other time zone websites out there. I knew I needed an explanation, but have you ever gone to a website where there's like a ton of words to explain it and you just want to start pushing buttons instead of reading? I needed a way to explain it, but only if the user asked for it. My first idea was to use a font awesome icon like a little eye in a circle, like an information button. And if you hovered over it, you'd get a pop-up that showed you an explanation. This turned out to be a hot mess. While it worked okay on the desktop, it was a disaster on mobile. On an iPhone held in portrait position, so vertically, tapping on the information icon would pop up the message and instantly it would disappear. But if the phone was held horizontally in landscape, it worked just fine. I have no idea why it didn't work in only one orientation. I posted a question about this in the Programming by Stealth channel I just finished telling you about in our Slack community, and Marianne suggested I set the trigger on the pop-up to click instead of hover. That made sense, because there isn't really a hover option on mobile devices. While this successfully stopped the disappearing act, there was an unfortunately worse side effect. If you got the information window to pop up, it covered the icon so you couldn't tap again to make it go away. My, my note was just too big for this kind of an interface element, I think. I started hunting for a better way. Now, most of the heavy lifting of creating the nice layout of my clock web app has been accomplished using a plugin Bar taught, uh, taught us called Bootstrap. There's a feature of Bootstrap called Collapse. Basically, you can create a click handler. Remember those event handler things? An event handler on a button that slides down a section of text and then collapses it back up when you tap it again. It's very elegant and it works perfectly. When you look at my time shifter clock, there's a giant blue button that says push to learn how this works. Click it once and a short explanation elegantly slides into view. Click it again and it rolls up out of the way. It even animates, it's really pretty. I'm so happy with this solution because it's clear, it's there when you need it, and it's gone when you don't, giving you more room on screen for the user interface, and it works beautifully on both desktop and mobile. I was so enamored of this bootstrap collapse technique that I added another one. Remember I was explaining earlier about how the time shifter rounds the hours down to the nearest hour before advancing forward in time? Well, I thought people might be confused by that. So right above the slider, I added a little question mark from Fawn Awesome with the word help next to it. If you tap that, a little box slides down using a bootstrap collapse to re reveal the explanation of how the feature works. Again, informative and elegant. When I first started developing my fancy time shifter clock, I was constantly studying documentation to learn how to create the elements of my design. In particular, I needed to learn how to use some plugins for JavaScript that would do all of the excessively complex time math. Those two plugins are called Moment.js and Moment Time Zone. I also needed to look things up in the Programming by Stealth show notes, and the easiest way to do that has been to use Dorothy's awesome PBS index. In all, there were eight different places I was constantly having to go to on the web to look for methods, and it was getting tedious opening them all the time. One, another feature of Bootstrap allows the developer to create what's called a navbar at the top of the screen. I added a navbar to my web app to include what I call helpful resources. On a big screen, my navbar shows links to the time zone documentation across the top, and then there's a drop-down menu of PBS resources. The cool thing about Bootstrap is it makes it really easy to have adaptable menus for the small screen too. 
When you look at my time shifter clock on a mobile device, all of these menus collapse into a cute little hamburger menu so they don't waste your precious green real estate. While this navbar was super helpful for me in the development process, if you look at my web app right now, you might find it curious that they're even included. Like, what's that got to do with this time clock thing? I'm planning some future enhancements right now, and one of them is to get rid of my lovely navbar. I'll certainly do a new one on my next project while I'm working on it for my own use, but now that my time shifter clock is officially released, I think it just takes up space with no value. The bigger enhancement I'm working on right now is to give the ability to add more cities. Right now, you can only see the time in two time zones, but if, what if you're trying to coordinate with three people or more? Remember how I said I used classes to create my clocks and how that made it easy to have multiple clocks without replicating the code? Well, it turns out the way I implemented this idea caused me to have to sort of hardwire some of those bits and pieces. While as a developer, I could certainly make there be three clocks pretty easily, allowing the user to do it with a push of a button is not possible. Dorothy's been helping me noodle out where I need to make some fundamental structural changes to the code, and that's been super helpful. I know what I need to do, and I think I even know how to do it. That said, it's probably going to take me months of, of time, and that'll be vast amounts of entertainment for me to try and execute on this task. And I have to do it without breaking the time or the data or the time shifter slider. You know, there's a, a lot of work to this, but it's going to be fun. I hope you enjoyed getting a little glimpse behind the curtain of what goes into the design of a little web app like mine. I've had such fun designing this, making the decisions on the user interface, and building what I think is a truly useful app that solves a real problem. I hope you'll go give it a try over at podfeet.com slash time dash shifter dash clock. If you want to see the guts under the hood, of course, it's released as an open source project on GitHub. I'm feeling quite the little developer now. There are three whole apps at podfeet.com slash web apps. You can see my time shifter clock there, my curtsy converter, and my guess a number game. Well, that's going to wind us up for this week. Don't forget to send in your dumb questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing me at allison at podfeet.com. And you can find me on Twitter at podfeet. As I said, I like seven times today, remember everything good starts with podfeet.com. You want to join Patreon? Podfeet.com slash Patreon. Rather do a one-time donation? Podfeet.com slash PayPal. Still having fun on Facebook? Podfeet.com slash Facebook. Want to check out our Slack? Podfeet.com slash Slack. And if you want to join in the fun of the live show and have amazing coincidences like two different people who actually knew each other because of a Japanese Discord, join head on over to podfeet.com slash live on Sunday nights at 5 p.m. Pacific time and join the friendly and enthusiastic Nocilla Castaways. Thanks for listening and stay subscribed.